You're listening to Sage Spirituality, reaching back, leaning in, and seeking out a deeper experience with God, with your host, Joel Marvin. Hey friends, I want to welcome you back to our newest episode of Sage Spirituality. I'm so grateful to have you here today, and I'm looking so forward to our conversation. We had such incredible feedback after our last podcast that really it made me ask the question to you today. Not only does your soul weigh more than your stuff, but I want to just give you maybe some insight on how you can add weight to your soul. I know that last time we talked about repentance and we talked about being thankful that God had called our attention to maybe our missteps, getting off path, not really doing exactly what we know we're supposed to be doing. But what I want to do today is I want to take a moment and I want to ask you to share this. Would you rate it? Would you subscribe to Sage Spirituality so that we can continue to come back every few weeks and have this conversation about eternity at our table? And I'm so incredibly encouraged by all of the feedback and all the positive words that I'm hearing, encouragement, and we're just going to continue to move forward. So today, I want to take an opportunity and just ask you to go with me in the New Testament to the most famous sermon ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount. It was Jesus's, we could say it's actually probably his magnum opus of sermons that we have recorded. It's recorded in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And, you know, to get into this uh, sermon, we're going to have to go to the very end and find out the importance. Why is it so important for us to take time and focus on the Sermon on the Mount? I'll tell you the truth. We can find that in Matthew 7 and 24. It says, Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain descended and the floods came. And the winds blew and beat on that house, and it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand, and the rain descended and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it fell, and great was its loss. You know, Jesus said that. That was a summary. That was the summary statement of his greatest sermon He said, if you'll take what I'm teaching you in these words and you'll apply them to your life, if you'll listen to me, then I'm going to call you a wise man. I'm going to say that you're adding weight to your soul. You're investing in eternal things. Now, the first thing when we look at this, we're automatically grabbed by the first eight sentences. And these first eight sentences are realistically bullet points in the greatest fashion. These are tweets before there were tweets. These are uh, memes before there were memes. These are the most direct and pointed words that we have from Jesus. And what I want you to see as he's speaking is something pretty incredible. Jesus here introduces us to what I like to call if then, a a cause and effect style of preaching that he used quite frequently with his disciples, saying, if you do this, then this is going to be the result. And he goes down through eight sentences that are just, like I said, blurbs. When we read these sentences, it's pretty amazing. It stands out to us because they're so short, so pointed, and there's really not a lot 
to interpret here. All we have to do is really understand what the, what Jesus was saying. And when we look at these, we call them the Beatitudes. We call them the, the blessed art thou. Uh, throughout the entire history of the church, these have formed an incredible bedrock for Christians in the early church. And what I want to do today is I want to take the Beatitudes and I want to consider them, but not through the light of modern church and modern Christianity. I want to look back at what our church fathers and people uh, way before our time, what they thought about these Beatitudes and how they interpreted them and how they applied them to their life. Now, I will tell you this, I promise you, we're going to come back and we're going to visit all of these in the future and, and probably even do a show for each one of these, but we're going to look at it in a little different form. We're going to look at it as vice and virtue. A couple years after Nicaea, there was a, a, a an amazing monk named Evagrius, and he took the virtues, the, the eight that we have here, and he formed what would end up becoming the deadly sins, and they re- reduced them down from eight to seven. Now they're called the seven deadly sins. So what we want to do today is we want to consider uh, what we're looking at. So let's jump right into this. Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, we can read these words, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. And when we are looking at this, realistically, Gregory of Nyssa, uh, he teaches us, he says, you know what? The poverty of spirit is voluntary humility. It's humility, uh, realizing that the dirt that we're walking on <laughs> is what we're formed out of. There's no one that's overly special or, or overly uh, great in, in and of themselves. Realistically, when we talk about being poor in spirit, it's just realizing that each one of us, we need God and we need other people. We can't do it on our own. There's no such thing as a self made man. We all have to look around and realize that only by the grace of God have we gotten to where we are. But Jesus gives us this problem. If you are poor in spirit, then you will have the kingdom of heaven. The second one we look at in verse 4 is, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Now, this is not feeling sorry for somebody or pity, but it's mourning. Mourning is something that we can only do when we've lost a loved one or something that's valuable that we cannot recover. And here, the most important thing is exactly what are we mourning? We're mourning our sin. And, you know, I look back at one of the early church fathers and realistically, he tells us, he says, it's not because we lost a spouse or because we lost something that we cherished. We're actually mourning because our sin has separated us from God. Do you not just, I mean, sometimes when I have sin in my life, I feel sorry for myself. I feel pity for myself. But realistically, do I mourn as if I had lost a loved one? And it's a very important point because it says when we do mourn, then we're going to be comforted and comforted by the Holy Spirit. The very next one we look at in verse 5, it says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And St. Augustine teaches us that the meek are those who do not yield to acts of wickedness and do not resist evil, but overcome evil with good. He said these words, Let those who are not meek quarrel and fight for earthly and temporal things, while we the meek by inheritance shall possess the earth 
from which they cannot be driven out. What this word meek means, it doesn't mean that we're patsies. It doesn't mean that we're that we're wimps. It doesn't mean that we're a, a, a doormat. What it does mean is it means that we can bridle our power. I want you to think about a massive, incredible horse. My wife is from the lovely state of Kentucky. Shout out to everybody that lives anywhere close to one of the racetracks, many racetracks around the state of Kentucky. Uh, But she grew up in uh, just very, very stone's throw from the Kentucky Derby. And those amazing, powerful horses that weigh hundreds and hundreds of pounds are being ridden by men who weigh usually less than 110 or 115 pounds. These little jockeys, they're small men, and they completely control that horse. And the way they control that horse is through something we call a bridle. So that jockey can take a bridle and put it into the mouth of the horse. And this jockey that weighs only 110, 120 pounds can absolute harness every bit of the power of that horse through that bridle. And that's what we do when we allow ourselves to be bridled by the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit reaches into our life and He harnesses our power. It means that we willfully give up uh, all of our feelings and all of our what we feel like are our entitlements. We give them up to the Holy Spirit. We realize that our opinion is... Uh, is not as important as our obedience. It's not thinking less of yourself, but it's simply thinking about yourself less. Now, when we get to verse number six, we see blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. And this makes me ask you a question. What are you hungering and thirsting for? Are you hungering and thirsting for things? Are you hungering and thirsting for stuff? Are you hungering and thirsting for things that don't really matter or not going to be uh, uh, on the radar in just a few years? If you are, you need to take note of this incredible blurb that Jesus spoke out. He said, in reality, this is opposed to us coveting what we want or desire. It's it's, it's our focus on our drive, on the things that we're pursuing. It's a greater and a deeper relationship with our Creator. That's what we're pursuing. That's what we're hungering. It doesn't say that we hunger and thirst for self-righteousness. When we hunger and thirst for self-righteousness, we do nothing but fall into the pit of the Pharisees and we become legalistic. We end up having these long lists of do's and don'ts that we're checking off. And what we're pursuing here is God's righteousness. We're pursuing a unity with a triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we're knowing and loving this incredible creator on a deeper level. Now, St. John Chrysotham, he said this, thus, because it is commonly thought that the rich are made wealthy through their own greed, Jesus says, in effect, no, it's just the opposite. For it is the righteous and the desire for righteousness that produces true wealth. Think about that. It's not the pursuit of riches. It's the pursuit of righteousness that produces true wealth. Thus, so long as you act righteously, You do not fear poverty or tremble at hunger. Rather, those who exhort are those who lose all, while one who is in love with righteousness possesses all other goods in safety. One of the promises here is 
when we hunger and thirst for righteousness, we will be filled. Now, we also look at the next one in verse 7. It said, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. And, you know, I absolutely positively love what St. Augustine said. This is in the fourth century in Africa. He said, You may overflow with temporal things, but remain in need of eternal life. You hear the voice of a beggar, but before God, you are yourself a beggar. Someone is begging from you while you yourself are begging. As you treat your beggar, so God will treat his. You who are empty are being filled. Out of your fullness, fill an empty person in need so that your own emptiness may be again filled by the fullness of God. Now think about those words. We're beggars and other people come to us begging for mercy. And we're beggars begging from our creator God for mercy. And the way this promise works is if we give mercy, if we learn to be merciful, if we learn to overlook faults, if we learn to overlook disagreements, if we learn to overlook the small things, then you know what? Realistically, God will overlook them in our life. We will obtain mercy here on earth. It's just a simple principle of sowing and reaping. And in Verse number eight, we see here that blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Again, I'm going to quote Augustine here. He said, we are able from a good conscience of good works to contemplate the highest good, which can be discerned by the pure and tranquil intellect alone. When we talk about having a pure heart, it's not about being perfect, but it's about having perfect motives. It's about realizing that the things we do We do because we want to help and we want to do what's right. We're not doing things to advance ourselves or to promote our own cause, to self-promote. But everything we're doing, we're doing simply out of the desire to do what's right. And when we do what's right, no matter what it costs us, we can have a clean conscience and we can say, I know my motives. I know the reason behind why I'm doing this. And when we live with that pure motive, with that pure heart, when we can stand before men, when we can stand before our detractors and tell them, you know what, the reason I did the things I did was because I wanted to do what was right, then you know what, we shall see God. That's our promise there. Verse number nine, we hear that blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And I love John Wesley's quote here. He says, in the essentials, unity in non-essentials, liberty, and all things charity. How amazing. You know what? In the essentials, we're united. In the non-essentials, we give leeway. We give, we give a little bit of mercy. But in all things we do, we give love. And we have to realize here something very, very important. It doesn't say blessed are the peacekeepers. It said blessed are the peacemakers. Now think about that really, really quickly and what it does in our life, how it applies to each one of us. When we're called peacemakers rather than peacekeepers, it means that we give up our rights to instigate so that we can mediate. We give up our rights to instigate so that we can step in and we can mediate. God's called us to become, he's given us what the Bible tells us is the ministry of reconciliation. 
And it doesn't mean that we have to go out and fix everyone. It doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean that we have to go out and resolve every conflict. But it means that when there needs to be an arbiter, that we're willing to go to the table and we're willing to be that person, to be the peacemaker. Now, we heard these first seven points and you know, I can tell you this, Jesus, all of a sudden in verse 10, he, you get this drum roll and he says, okay, Chuck, what have they won for being so obedient and doing all these things for being peacemakers, for being pure in heart, for being merciful, for hungering and thirsting for righteousness, for being meek, for sacrificing and mourning their, their sin, or for being poor in spirit and humbling themselves. What have they won? Right here, we see the payoff. We see the buy-in, if you want to, and this, this really makes me laugh because Jesus was so non-seeker friendly because his last point was this in verse 10, 11, and 12. He said, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, wait a minute. Wait a minute. You mean my payoff is persecution? My payoff are false accusations? My payoff are misunderstandings? Wait a minute. You know what? When we follow this prescription that Jesus gave to his followers 2,000 years ago, something happens. It makes us completely different from all the people around us. It makes us not self-centered. It makes us misunderstood. It makes us selfless beings in a selfish world. It makes us different. It Maybe even in the 21st century, it makes people look at us as if we're otherworldly or we're non-tolerant or we're extreme. And it will absolutely positively lead us to greater persecution in our life. Because we don't fit the narrative that's being handed out by the world that's around us. Instead of pride, we practice humility. Instead of celebrating our sins, we mourn them. Instead of unquestioned authority, we choose to practice bridled power. Instead of envying what our neighbors have, we strive for greater virtues. Instead of holding grudges and being offended and feeling justified in our hurts, we let it go and practice mercy. Rather than hiding motive, undermining and backstabbing to climb the ladder of success, we live in such a way that is pure in motive and in action. We do not stoke the fires of controversy and division, but we strive to bring division to an end. We mediate rather than instigate. We expect that for all of our holy living, helping and virtue, that our payoff is going to be persecution rather than being celebrated. This differentness, though, is what causes us to stand out. And in the very next phrase, Jesus tells us why it's so important as believers for us to stand out in the world where we live because we add flavor to the world. In the middle of our crazy world, when we live different, our differentness can cause other people to thirst for what we have. Look at what Jesus said in verse 13, 14. He said, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. Now think about that. Realistically, we only 
have value in the kingdom of God when we're different from the world around us. Now think about this, right? We're formed from the dust of the earth and God took us and used the illustration of salt. It was so important. You could do an entire episode. You could do days on biblical illustrations of salt, but I'm not going to go into that right now. We have the dust of the earth and what is it that sets salt apart from the dirt or the dust of the earth. It's its flavor. It's its differentness. And that's what sets us apart from the world around us. It's not some way that we dress or necessarily a bunch of rules that we follow, but it's living our life in a different way. Now, what I want to tell you here is this. I know these are very challenging points. I know that it's really, really hard to give up your entitlement. I know that we live in a society that really preaches... Uh, our selfish powers. Each of us, like I said in the last episode, each one of us have our own little kingdom. We threw off the chains of tyranny with the British Empire and the and the English king. But I can tell you right now that realistically, we're living under the chains of tyranny of each one of us being our own king and each one of us having our own kingdom. And when we look at the world through those eyes, it's very, very difficult for us to give up. I love this quote from Jim Elliot that said, that man is no fool to give up what he cannot keep, to gain what he cannot lose. Now, Jim Elliot is special to me because he was a missionary that was martyred here in Ecuador, just about 50 miles from where I'm recording this podcast. And for me, those words speak immensely to this conversation. We're giving up things, we're giving up stuff, we're giving up entitlement so that we can add weight to our soul. And the way we add weight to our soul is living in complete obedience to Jesus Christ. I love it. There's this illustration from probably the greatest American theologian ever. His name was Jonathan Edwards. Maybe you heard of his most famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of the Angry God. He was also a president of Princeton University and an amazing man, very intelligent. But he talked about something that was so amazing. He said, there's a difference in rationally knowing that honey is sweet just because the science tells us it's sweet. And it's completely different when we experience the sweetness of the honey. And a lot of you guys, you've read throughout your life about God's goodness and about the way God changes and transforms our life, but you've never experienced. And the reason you've never experienced it is because the only way we can experience it is through complete obedience. The only way that we can actually taste and see that the Lord is good is by obeying what He commanded us to do. No, these eight sentences that I just shared from Jesus' most famous sermon, realistically, they're not suggestions. They're not eight ways to have success in life. If we live all eight of these, it's going to make us stand out. It's going to make us different from the world around us. It's going to make us stand out just like a spoonful of dirt stands out from a spoonful of salt. It's going to completely make us oppose a lot of times the world that we're living in, but it's worth it. It's worth it at the end of our lives to be able to look back and say, we've lived and we've tasted and we've seen that the Lord is good. 
we've obeyed him, we've given up things, but what we've gotten in return is so much more valuable and so much more amazing. I love that last sentence, and I want to go back to that, Jesus' last sentence in the Beatitudes. Verse 12, he says, Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. I'll read it one more time. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. So you do these eight things. You live as a peacemaker. You're pure in heart and your motive. You practice mercy. You hunger and thirst for righteousness rather than things. You're meek. You practice bridled power. You mourn for your sins. And you humble yourself and make yourself poor in spirit. And when you do those things, you have this incredible payoff. You're adding weight to your soul. Friends, thank you so much for giving me your time and allowing me to talk to you about eternity. I look so forward to continuing this conversation. You're not going to want to miss our next episode. It's going to be amazing, and I'm going to guarantee you it's going to challenge you like you've never been challenged. God bless you, and let's continue to go deeper with God.